صباح الخير صباح الياسمين This morning we have a fantastic guest the iconic Gemma Bell and I know you hate me calling you the iconic Gemma Bell but it just makes me feel I so do. good <laughs> Gemma it's a pleasure having you with us Thank you so much, Fadi. Thank you. It's great to be here this morning, even though you call me iconic. Well, I call you iconic for, and we'll talk about this later on the show, but I think in in the world of Palestinian cuisine, you've contributed enormously. And actually, for this show, you've contributed enormously because a lot of the people that we ha- we hosted before are people you, you put us in touch with, people you know, or people you mentioned. Um, you're a bit like the... We guess the icon of Palestinian cuisine who just takes care of all Palestinians that try and do something with food. But let's talk about Gemma Bell first. Okay. You do a lot of things. And one of them is you, you do run a very successful PR agency specialized in hospitality and restaurants. But you're also on the Amos Trust board. You're on Rare Charity board. You're mm-hmm. an editor of a magazine. I mean, you're doing plenty of stuff, but let's start from the beginnings. How did Gemma get her foot into the world of food? Well, um, it was a long time ago, um, uh, over 20 years ago now. I think it's probably pushing on 25. While I was, I came to London to study and while I was studying, um, I worked in restaurants and bars to pay the rent you know, which a lot of students do. Um, And I was a a young student um, and the evenings were a time when I could work. Um, And so got into working in restaurants and I just loved it. Um, Being an extrovert, I really loved interacting with the guests and talking to them about food and serving them, Uh, you know, even learning how to make a cappuccino. I loved every (laughs) every aspect of it, every aspect. Um, And I worked for, at the end of my studying years, um, I worked for Marco Pierre White, which was um, interesting. Um, No, it was really good. I learned an incredible amount. Um, and that was really, really fun. And then I worked for uh, Ian Schrager when he opened up his first hotel in London um, in 99. And again, just learned so much and became really immersed in the hospitality industry and, and loved every aspect of it. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, I was working from six o'clock in the morning till midnight every day and loving it all. Um, I mean, you can work those hours when you're in your 20s, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, if, if you're a chef, you still end up working them, whether you're twi- in your 20s or your 40s. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. I just realized that all of those hours on my feet were killing me, but it was really, really great. And I just learned from so many amazing people, um, both front of house and back of house. I loved being front of house. I loved interacting with the guests, but I also really loved back of house. I loved planning um, and strategizing and, you know, meeting with the chefs and the directors and the the managers and working out what to do next um, and planning next steps. And I guess that that was really my start then going into PR. Because then a few years later, I got into um, PR for restaurants and bars and was given some opportunities by people, which I will always be thankful. And then to cut a long story short, um, about uh, 11 years ago now, I went freelance and it was just me, um, you know, working with my laptop on my knees, working out what I was going to do. Had a few clients and it grew from there and then started employing uh, a team. And so that's um, next year will be 10 years old. And it's been, you know, it's been a journey. It's been a lot of fun. 
and again, just never stop learning about um, about the hospitality industry and about communications. I love it. And you're extremely good at it, you and your team. Well, and, thank you. <laughs> and and we're, we're very happy to, to have people like you around us and being a bit our guardian angels. Um, so I, I'm going to share because you have a very particular relation with journalists. And I, I'm going to share a bit of a secret to our uh, listeners. Most people know I have a bad mood sometimes and I can be quite... Um, <laughs> Quite quite, oh, yeah. quite quite rough. And so the secret is usually I send a WhatsApp to Gemma and I'll be like, I'm going to call this person, whether it's somebody who's like tweeted something I don't like or written an article that I don't like. <laughs> By the time she comes back to me, I already did that call and have you know done a lot of damage. And then Gemma works her magic and repairs that. <laughs> oh, I'd love to say it's a pleasure. <laughs> Ah, come on. It's not always a pleasure. But, well, that's the point I wanted to get to is you've worked with a lot of fantastic chefs. And chefs are known to not always be sweethearts and have a nice um, Mm -hmm. uh, way of dealing with, and especially with PR, because our job changed a lot. I mean, 30 years ago, you'd tell a chef, oh, you need some PR, and they'd be just, you know, they wouldn't even understand what you're talking about. And today the feeling we get is, before you open a restaurant or before you, you do any, anything in your career as a chef, you need to mm-hmm. have your PR thought out. You need somebody who's knowledgeable and caring yeah. um, that can accompany you. I, you you've, you've seen this change because I can imagine when you started with Marco Pia White, you, it wasn't such, I mean, PR was already a part of, the day-to-day operation but it wasn't such a large part of the operation how did you, did you feel that changed is it something that's that's really impacted the way chefs work um i think it has and actually you mentioned marco because what's interesting is that really he's very much regarded as the first celebrity chef and he was I don't know if I can say the first, but he was definitely one of the first to have a PR. Um, and I knew his PR. Um, and it was, um, and, and that was definitely a turning point, I think. Um, and chefs now, yes, I think that if you're going to open up a new place, you need, you need some PR. And actually, I heard someone the other day saying, oh, it seems really unfair that only uh, the big guys, you know, the month, the guys with loads of cash can pay for PR. So they're the ones that get heard. But actually, well, that is true, but that's true um, in many industries. Um, but what people don't know is that actually PR agencies like me, not just me, but others I know as well, really enjoy working with small unknown restaurants where chefs are just starting out and you just want to help them and like you said earlier it's a bit about being like a guardian angel um you know you want to hold someone's hand and take them on their journey and encourage them and build them up and tell the world about them um and that's what's that's what i love about my job and that's what's really exciting that, and, and that's what you've done with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I hope so. The little restaurant so for people to, to, to know this. A few years ago, Gemma was in Bethlehem, and she literally pushes open the door of the house of Syrian, walks in, and somebody comes up to my kitchen and says, there's somebody who wants to see you. Um, and that's how I met Gemma. And since then, we've worked together and we've become friends. But I, I really feel, Gemma, you do have a very strong approach towards social responsibility that goes sometimes even beyond your your work. I I sometimes get a feeling you're doing more of the guardian angel work than 
It's not the work that gets your company to make money. Well, that's very kind. I just think that, um, you know, when you meet people in life and you feel inspired by them and by what they're doing, um, you want to tell everyone. And and I just think there are so many people that I've met, like you, who have inspired me. And just I get really excited and I want to and I want to help. And there's I think there's just something in me that that wants to do that. And I'm certainly not someone who, you know, wants to make loads and loads of money and um, you know, have a have a massive business. I'm not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um actually it's about celebrating people's talents um and encouraging them and making sure that they're recognized by everybody thank you um for being how you are <laughs> um <laughs> uh and for really because I, i think also a lot of the people you work with carry values that are similar and it's yes. a lot about the people it's a lot yeah. about our responsibilities um right now with the COVID-19, I know we, we've had this discussion uh, a lot mm. and we've thought about it together and with other chefs. You know, what, what do we do with our staff? What do we do with our teams? Mm. And and I, I never heard you or some of the chefs you, you, you work with or people that I've met through you say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're losing on profit. People were saying, I mean, everybody was just talking about their teams. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that reunites a bit your company and your ethos together with with people that are similar minded a bit well i think i think you're right and i think um values are incredibly important to to any business but actually they're incredibly important to to all of us our own values make up who we are and i think once you spend some time thinking about what those values are you suddenly start applying them to everything that you do going Oh, hang on a minute. Does that does that? Why am I feeling uncomfortable about this situation? Oh, I'm not sure it resonates with my with my values. Which sounds which mm-hmm. sounds really airy fairy. But when your values are uh, professionalism, honesty, authenticity, sort of values like that, you suddenly realise the importance of them. And then when you start applying that to people that you're going to work with, you end up surrounding yourselves with people that have similar values to you. Not all the same because you need to have a mixture of people in your life lives but you their work ethic ends up being really similar to yours and the way that they think um and especially when you come to values like justice um and authenticity um you know that i think are, are really important ones i think when you when you realize that there are people around you that you work with that have those same values it everything Uh, everything becomes good and you mm. kind of realize how much you can work how much good you can do together and not just kind of business but you can do more good together and if ju- that makes sense <laughs> it does totally justice is what got you to palestine yeah that's right so yeah how- i actually i mean i i first came to palestine really not very long ago at all it was only 2016 um when i ran my first half marathon can you believe it uh-huh. and um <laughs> And I think that um, I was just so struck by the injustice um, that I was seeing firsthand for the first time. Um, it struck me so much that I couldn't. It, I it just I couldn't unsee it. I couldn't unexperience it and just forget about it. I couldn't come back to the UK and just go, oh well, you know that was a nice trip. Those people live in awful circumstances, but oh well, I couldn't let that drop. 
Um, and so that's why I've been coming back and seeing you <laughs> and uh, learning as much as I can um, about the situation. And meeting people all over the place. Because yeah. that, that's one of the fantastic things you, you've been doing is whenever you're here, you do go across the territory and meet people. Um, mm -hmm. With Zaytun, you've, you've met their producers, you've become friends with their producers. Yeah. You, yeah. Um, when you... Oh, it's been such a, sorry, it's been such a great experience, um, you know, to travel around Palestine with you, with Zaytun, with Amos Trust, um, and to, to meet farmers and producers, um, and to talk about food. I mean, it's, it just means everything. And it's, it's so incredible to see people, um, you know, really work hard at their businesses and produce amazing things you know the dates the olive oil oh it's, it's fantastic so Gemma, here's a difficult question what is your uh -oh. favorite palestinian product and you get to choose oh, one goodness. only okay well, do you know what actually i can answer it really easily and it has to be dates the medjool date ah. oh i just think the medjool dates that i have had in palestine i have never tasted anything like it so toffee gooey um sweet but not too sweet just absolutely delicious i think yeah they're incredible i can't get enough of them and i always have a pack of zaytun dates at home <laughs> and i think you, you you posted a picture recently of you running out of the dates yes so, so it means once the lockdown is up and you can travel we'll be expecting yes. you on a plane back to palestine Hundred percent, absolutely. And I better have a plate of dates waiting for me, Fadi. You know very well that that's what we do at Hosh Sirian anyway, and we have dates yes. waiting for you when you arrive. And you pretend that you're not going to eat them, and like, oh, but we're going to be having dinner, and by that time you still ha you have them. You can't resist Palestinian dates. Can't resist. Um, can't resist. And the welcome at Hosh is so wonderful. I can't wait to come back. Thank you. And Zaytun have been doing great work, and you've been working mm. together and. I'm lucky I got to meet Zaytun through you. One of the things that really struck me with Zaytun is that they come here, they test mm. the products, they know the people, and it's mm -hmm. not superficial, it's real. It's yeah. when they're, the whole team at Zaytun have a real belonging into the, the structure. And that's always something that, that for me has been, in the past, you know, I was wondering things like, oh, but should we export Palestinian Frika or are we going to end up having a disaster like quinoa was a disaster for the Peruvians? Yes. And then when you meet people like Zaytun and see with what ethics and values, again, that they're working, it just makes mm. sense. It really does. They are such an incredible team. I have to say an all-female team. Um, actually, though, there are a couple of guys, <laughs> but uh, mostly female. And they're really incredible. And they spend so much time um, yeah, going to Palestine, meeting with the producers, tasting the produce. And um, wh whenever I'm talking to journalists actually about Zaytun products, I always say, don't feel like you're doing any charity here. These products are award-winning. These products are top quality. These are the best. It's not just about kind of, you know, it's not just about helping some farmers. No, you're doing this because the quality is the best you can get. You know, their olive oil is award-winning, the first olive oil in the world to get fair trademark. Um, you know, their produce is organic, um, it's fair trade, it's delicious. Um, and they work incredibly hard with the producers to make sure the quality is always good standard. Um, and, you know, the math tool is is handmade. It's, hand, it's absolutely beautiful. And that's why 
you know, we always explain, yes, it may be more expensive um, than your average couscous, but this maftal is unique to Palestine and is handmade by women in Janine. It's the best. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did a, a recipe of maftal a few days ago on, on the podcast. I had. Oh, thank you. And <laughs> I, I do insist on maftal is not couscous because the... No. The, the products are different used to make it, but also mm. it's hand-rolled. It's not machine-made, yes. and it's a different story. Now, couscous is hand-rolled when it's really well done. And the problem is today we're seeing, and, and that's part of a larger issue, which is culinary reappropriation, um, mm-hmm. is we're seeing a lot of industrial Israeli products claiming yes. to be um, things like maftul. And when I see things like Israeli couscous, and it's actually a pasta that's not really couscous and not really maftul, but it's somewhere in the middle, um, and it's industrial. Well, you know, that's not really what, what the story is about. Um, the story is about real products with real people. And I know about, I mean, Zaytun, you know, I've been lucky since you introduced us. They, they usually spend a few days in, in different producers' areas, and then they, they come to Hosh Sirian, and then they t- test everything on me. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I've been I've been recently had to taste a few tahinas for them. Um, oh yes, great! I hope they'll have tahinas soon in the UK. So that's the other question I had, which is what Palestinian product you wish you could find in the UK, but that's still not in the UK. Well, of the ones that I've uh, tried, so yes, tahini would be amazing. Although that I know that there is a brand, um, which I'm not going to name now, that does get tahini from Nablus, but doesn't say it's from Palestine. So, you know, there's some work to be done around there. <laughs> um, um, but also, um, you know, the the Dead Sea Salt producer that we went and visited, yes. um, that was so incredible. And I know Zaytun are working really hard to get that salt to the UK market, which I think would be fantastic. It was a beautiful salt. Um, and again, just just a, a family that would be really great to support. Yeah, and, and I, I like what you, what you said in the beginning about when you talk to journalists, you just tell them you're not doing charity. Um, mm. I think that has been a, quite a big change in the last few years, whether it's with produce or with chefs. But in the mm. past... I felt Palestinian food and Palestinian produce were either sold and packaged as a charity product or they were um, aimed specifically at certain communities. Yes. And in the last few years, we've seen whether it's with with products with people like Zaytun or with with chefs or with cookbooks, um, we've gone out of the closet a bit. And, oh, and we're completely. saying no, you know, don't don't come and eat in my restaurant because you think um, I deserve your your charity. Mm. Come and eat because mm. you want to eat my food and you're interested by the quality of the food and what we're doing with it. You know, don't buy Palestinian olive oil because you think you're doing a good deed only. Yes, it's important to have a responsibility, definitely, but yes. that shouldn't be your first reason to buy a product. No. Your first reason is you're buying Palestinian olive oil because it's damn good. And then, yes. and then it has a responsibility, and you are supporting hundreds of farmers in the Janine area through through the olive oils they do. I mean, that, is it something you've really seen that change in the UK happen, and like the quality yes. oriented bit? I think it's really, really changed. I mean, um, probably 
changed more in the sort of foodie circles first um and but that is definitely expanding um i mean you've seen the dramatic change in products in the supermarket here over the last sort of five ten years of you know now regular supermarkets having zatar on the shelves um uh which is fascinating um but i think that definitely people are starting to first of all take the interest in where products are from and understanding the culture and the history of that product um and then they're starting to understand oh okay this is is we can't just jumble this up and say it's a middle eastern uh product i mean that's just like saying pasta is a european product it doesn't make any sense so you know you need to think about um understanding where products come from and really asking the questions of like where is this being made how is it being made and understanding it and i feel as if now thank goodness people are starting to understand about um palestinian products and it's very much down to you know chefs and zaytoon and uh, people talking about it more and the products being available on menus and restaurants more which is really great and, and that's what we need to go on doing because you know it's something that mm. strikes me every time i think of it it's Well, if you're buying um, any product from anywhere in the world or if you're a chef and using a product or a recipe or a technique that is inspired by anything else around the world, you usually say where it comes from. And that's really what's happening. I mean, the origin of products has become an extremely important factor of our daily lives as as chefs when we source things, when we... um, give credit to the fabulous artisans and, and farmers that, that produce things we use because we, we, yes. we wouldn't exist without them. I mean, like, you know, we have to be honest. Uh, um, you no, can have, a, really very, you ha- you can have I... a very good chef and a fantastic PR, but no products. And we'd, we'd not be serving anybody. <laughs> Failed. A meal. Exactly. I mean, Fail, failure. <laughs> but I think that's, what's really interesting is I think that, you know, and as chefs, you know, you can still be creative. This doesn't put a dampener on being creative um, by using um, products from a particular place or that has history and an identity with a particular country, but give that country and that culture respect and understanding and understand the history um, of that dish and the importance of the dish to the nationality. And then, sure, kind of be creative. But I think there's always a, there's a respect thing, right, that you must show to that culture. Exactly. And I feel as if now where people are only just starting to understand that about Palestine and just starting to understand um, the amount of dishes that originate in Palestine and not other places. Exactly. And, and that's what we need to continue doing together, all of us. Totally. I one one last question, and that is in relation to what you said about Zaytun having a team that's majority female. Um, mm. I know Gemma Bell and Co is also a bit like that, and the Harsh Syrian is a bit like that. My my kitchen is exclusively female. My team is majority <laughs> female. I think that has also contributed to change things in our industry, where the role of women in the industry. I I don't look at a chef. And say, oh well, she's a woman chef. I just look at a chef regardless of their gender, and they're a oh, chef. Yeah. But but the relation to produce, the relation mm. to a bit the the like the, the whole sensitivity of things where where things come from, I think goes in on par with a lot of other things that have changed in our industry, and one of them is gender equality. Yes. I think, yeah, I think gender equality uh, is getting better. 
I feel as if, um, you know, at the top end of the restaurant, uh, restaurant industry, sort of Michelin level, it's still very male dominated. Um, and in the UK, it's very male and very white dominated. Um, we would obviously love to see um, it to be much more democratic um, uh, sort of groups of people. But I think we'll get there. But I think you're absolutely right that you know, there's more women in kitchens than ever before now. And it's just going to take time for this, the younger generation of, of women to, uh, you know, to progress and become head chefs and become executive chefs and become restaurant owners themselves. But we'll definitely get there. And it is a massive improvement. And we, I hope we, we will get there sooner than later. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Gemma, thank you very much for being with us. It's oh, really thank been you, a Buddy. Pleasure talking to you, and I hope we'll see you very, very soon in Palestine. I hope so. I will book my ticket as soon as we're allowed to. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to speak to you. Thanks so it's a much. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too.